Hey, it's good to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. You can turn it on to Philippians chapter 1 if it's on your phone. Uh, we're just going to continue in our series through... Um, so will you turn that computer so I can see what my next slide is? Perfect. Okay, Philippians 1, 19 through 26, and uh, we'll continue in our series. Uh, when I was in high school, when I was a senior in high school, one of my friends, she was in a car accident and she suffered a head in injury that gave her amnesia. And after several days, she came back to school and uh, she was led by the hand by one of her friends. Uh, and her friend was literally taking her around the school saying, this is our school, and here is your math class, and here is your English class, and she was introducing her to people, and I remember her, her coming to me in the cafeteria and saying, uh, and this is Mark, he's one of your friends, and, and really that odd, odd moment where we, we, we knew each other, we, we, we were friends, but uh, for, in her eyes it was, I'm meeting this person for the first time. And so uh, I was like, hey, it's good to see you again. I'm glad you're okay. And, and she's like, okay, if you say so. And uh, she continued to go on. And, and her friend would say, now this is what's true, and this is what's right. This is what's true, and this is what's right. And she continued to do that so that over the next couple days and weeks, eventually what was true and what was right became uh, tangible to her. And so she didn't need to know where, where to go each time uh, for each class and, and who her friends were and who her friends weren't. But uh, it, I, I thought of that as we gathered together. I think of that really a lot because, uh, in a sense, we, we are a people that have gospel amnesia. So you'll leave here, and for the next 167 hours, if you don't go to a gospel community or, or get together, uh, you, you'll be breathing the air of this culture, which uh, both in this culture and our hearts will, will make us forget the truths of the gospel. This is what's true, and this is what's right. And so, like Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. It is just working overtime to produce idols in our lives, and, and this culture is working overtime to make sure those idols uh, find their, their commercial value, and um, uh, we forget what's true and what's right. The book of Hebrews tells us that one of the main purposes of why we are gathered here this morning is because we are a gospel amnesia people, and we need each other to take each other hand in hand and say, this is what's true, and, and this is what's right, because uh, we can forget. That's what Hebrews 10, 24, 25 would tell us. And so one of the things we do, one of the key purposes, in addition to worshiping the living God, is to come together and say everything we do is to remind us once again of what's true and what's right. And so we sing gospel-saturated songs of what's true and what's right, and that gets into our hearts and minds through one way. And we pray gospel-centered prayers of what's true and what's right. We go through a catechism that is gospel-centered that says, here's what's true true and what's right, and let's say it together, and then we stand under the, we sit under the Word of God, and by the Spirit of God, uh, we hear what is true and what's right. And after that, we'll come to the communion table, and because Jesus knows we're a forgetful people, he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to sing the gospel, we're going to hear the gospel, but I want you to taste the gospel because you forget what's true and what's right. 
And so that's why we're gathered. That's why it's important that we come together. Not because uh, coming, coming to church makes you a Christian as much as uh, going into a garage makes you a car, but, uh, but because the church gathers together and we, we, we sing and you hear the voices of the people on your left and your right and you, you taste the gospel through communion, uh, we're reminded once again as we go out of what's true and what's right so that maybe we won't forget it on Monday morning or Tuesday or Wednesday. But we need each other. We need this time. This series is, is to remind us of what we believe is what's true and what's right. We believe we exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. For the glory of God and the joy of all people. And it's no accident that we picked the book of Philippians to go through as, as our first study because it is a book of, of joy. And, and 16 times in the book, Paul, writing from a Roman prison, is going to talk about rejoicing and finding joy. But, but we found out last week that it's not only a book of joy, it's a book of sorrow and struggle and pain. And in our world, sorrow, struggle, and pain seems to be the opposite of, of joy and happiness. But, but we saw last week that they aren't the opposites. In fact, in God's providence, he'll use sorrow, struggle, and pain to deepen our joy. And so even in that, God has good purposes. We saw last week that if your delight is on God's good purposes, your joy can rise above your painful circumstances, whatever they are. And all of us will have them, and pain will come. And, and so we're reminded of what's true and what's right. And this week, Paul is going to up the ante. It's one thing to say that God works through suffering, but what is ultimately true and ultimately right? And that's where we pick up the, the story. We get to eavesdrop in on the Apostle Paul as he's writing this letter to a church that he loves. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to hear Paul address the Philippians, but the Spirit address us in this. And so Paul has said, uh, I want you to know that, my brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so the Philippians are like, well, well we're relieved by that because um, that, that's good news that God, God can use even pain. But, but Paul, sitting on the throne in Rome, is a guy named Nero. And Nero is a psychopath, a megalomaniac. He, he wanted to make a name for himself, and the way that you made a name for yourself that lasted beyond your little life was to make great monuments for yourself. And so uh, one night, uh, historians tell us that he had part of Rome burned down, and the people traced it back to Nero, and they were going to revolt, and, and he needed a scapegoat. And so he found a scapegoat in these, this new sect called Christianity. And he unleashed a, a persecution on the church like the world had never seen before. He, he had thousands of our brothers and sisters crucified. He had others gathered up. He would dip them in oil, nail them on a stake, put them on the Roman Coliseum that you can visit today, light them on fire for lights for his games, and throw Christians to the lions and to the gladiators. He was a psychopath, and he's on the throne right now. All that will probably come later and is not quite to that point yet, but nonetheless, it is getting very dangerous to be a Christian. It's one thing to say God can work through suffering, but what about if they kill you, Paul? What are we going to do if, if our pastor, our founder, if the leader of the Christian church is murdered for the faith? And so Paul addresses that. 
And he's going to speak to that. We actually get an eavesdrop on his thought process in this, in, in this uh, six verses or so. Here's what he says. He, he has just said he rejoices in his sufferings because God is at work in those. But then he says in, at, at the end of 18, starting in 19, and again as I read this, listen carefully to God's word. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. I want, you, I want you to hear the confidence in that. He's not saying, I think I'm going to rejoice. I think everything's going to work out. Uh, he's saying, no, I will rejoice. And he gives us evidence for why he is so confident in verse 19. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He says, I'm confident in two things. He says, I know that God ordains the ends. He's going to accomplish his good purposes for his glory and our joy. I know that's going to happen, but he also ordains the means. And part of the means is that uh, people will pray. And, and Paul believes in prayer. And he knows the Philippians are praying for him. And he says, so I'm confident in that. And I'm confident in the spirit of Christ. So these two things are going to turn out for my deliverance. The word there actually, though, is soterio. We get the word soteriology from. It means the doctrine of salvation. So he's not saying, I know, I know I'm going to be set free. He thinks that he might be set free. He thinks he has a good case as a Roman citizen. But what he's really saying is, ultimately, God is going to rescue and redeem me, whether it's in this life or the next. I am going to be delivered. He's actually quoting Job chapter 13, verse verse 13 and verse 16. And Job is saying, I, I can't wait to get face to face to God because he will be my deliverer. He will be my salvation. And Job knows a thing or two about suffering. And so Paul, thinking in his suffering of Job's answer, he gives Job's answer. He says, I know it'll turn out for my deliverance, verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all, not be at all ashamed Meaning that, that, that through the prayers and the hope of the Spirit, his perseverance in the faith is going to continue. More than that, uh, his hope in Christ isn't going to be found as a hollow hope, but that it's going to carry him through. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Now listen to this, whether by life or by death. He, his Hope is that Christ will be honored. In fact, the word there, that's a good word, but the word actually means magnified. That Christ will be magnified in my life. Now, there's, there's two ways to magnify something. I mean, there's many ways, but, but two ways that I'm thinking of. One is, is through a microscope, and, and that's what you take is very small and blow it up so that you can see it. This is what we do with our, our struggles and our problems. We say, look at this. Look how big this is. This is terrible. My problems are so big. Would you look at this? We put it on Facebook. We, we, we do all these things. We look through a microscope. But Paul's saying, that's not the kind of magnification I'm talking about. Not a microscope, but a telescope. A telescope takes that which is huge, that which is glorious, that which is awesome, and brings it to bear so that you can behold its majesty. And that's what Paul's getting at. He says, whether by life or by death, I want my whole 
being to magnify Christ, to bring Christ in view so that others can say amen, say, man, Christ is glorious. He is amazing. He is awesome. He is beautiful. I see it through your life. I see it through your living, and I see it through your death. You know, we all preach our own funerals. I'm not saying that you preach your own funeral. I'm saying that your life and your death will preach your funeral. All of us will come to a day where we will have crossed from this life to the next. Our body will be in a casket or whatever, and we'll be in a church or or somewhere on the mountainside, and uh, maybe there'll be a pastor, and and 99% of the times he'll say a bunch of nice things about you, uh, but, but the crowd sitting there will say, is that true or not? I mean, what, what is this guy talking about? That, that girl's not like that. I, I know we're out of funerals, and so we got to say nice things, but uh, at the end, if your life has magnified Christ and your death has magnified Christ, when the pastor stands up and says that, you'll say, yes, I see Christ better now. The first funeral I ever did was my mother's funeral four years ago or so. Um, she had... Uh, died from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, after struggling, after suffering greatly for three and a half, four years. Uh, But it was those three and a half, four years that, 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 as C.S. Lewis said, in the good times, God whispers to us, but in pain and suffering, God shouts to us through a megaphone. And though she struggled and though she had uh, her own issues, it was those three and a half years where Christ became magnified in her life. Christ became the treasure that he is. And more and more, her, her longing and her yearning was for Christ. So that as the time drew down and it was coming evident, she, she called me. I was living in Okinawa. She said, hey, I want you to do my funeral. I want you to... And I said, okay, I can do that, Mom. And, and what, what do you want me to say? And she said, just make much of Jesus. I can do that. And so uh, as she passed and I got on a plane and, and, and flew to Colorado and my sister and I, we, we began to put together the, the service and we said, well, we want to magnify Jesus. And, and uh, it, it did in her, her, her death and, and at the service. And um, so my sister and I were laughing about this yesterday because uh, at the reception line, as people came through, some people were like, wow, uh, that's the first time I've heard the name of Jesus more than the person we came to remember. Um, and so I don't know if that was a compliment or a knock, but we kind of laughed at it and we we're like, yeah, we kind of did put Jesus out there a lot. But you know what I know for sure is that as she saw Jesus face to face, she would have been to- she would be totally fine if her name wasn't mentioned at all. Because in that moment, Christ was fully realized and fully magnified in her life. And so for her to live is Christ and to die was gain. In fact, that's the next verse. Whether by life or death, I want my life to be magnified. Verse 21, I believe this is Paul's life verse, if he has a life verse. It's a short verse. You can, we can all memorize it. You might have it on a co- coffee cup or a Christian t-shirt or, or that, that, that nice little vinyl lettering in your bathroom. And the problem with that, though, is, and, and with a lot of these verses in Philippians, that they become so familiar because they're great verses, but they, they become so familiar, we can miss the, the impact of them. And so let's just pause and soak in the impact of what Paul is about to say. 
Don't miss these first three words, verse 21. For to me. Paul's not giving a theological lecture. Paul is a person who has been radically transformed by the gospel. Someone who knows that he was dead in his sins and transgression, even in his religious affections. He was, that was all garbage, he'll later say in Philippians. And, and he's been brought from the kingdom, the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. He knows this personally. He's experienced this personally. So he says, for to me, this is, this is the biggest thing in my life, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The English teachers in here know that, that that grammatically doesn't make a ton of sense, but theologically you, start, you, you can kind of get it. But, but in the Greek, grammatically it's even harder. There, there's no verb is there. So it literally reads like this, for to me, to live, Christ, to die, gain. That's how it reads. To live, Christ. To die, gain. Again, this, this was an echo of Paul's life. He, he's saying, man, God can use my suffering, but guess what? He, he can use my death as well, and, and that's a, a very good thing. To the Ephesian elders, as he was on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that the Spirit told him you would be bound and chained, you'd be, you'd be thrown into prison, he says this to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is hard for us. These verses are hard for us to wrap our lives around because, honestly, we are life lovers. Some of us are clinging to life a little bit too much. But not because we want to magnify Christ, just because we think that's all there is. We, we got to hold on to life. In fact, we live in a weird time, in a weird paradox. We, we, we are life lovers for our own sake, but we are also uh, entering in increasingly into a culture of death. That if life is uncomfortable and life is painful, let's just end it. And if it's inconvenient for you, end it before it, it really begins. And, and so this, this culture of, of life for ourselves, a selfish life lovers. But for Paul, and he was in process, of, surely it wasn't always like that. But, but as, as God purified him, he could say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But isn't this the message that Jesus said as well? If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And the crowds were like, cross? That's painful and that's death. And they went away in droves. But some got it. And so Jesus would continue to teach this message and he would tell them parables. The shortest parable, one verse parable, uh, Matthew chapter 13 verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Now don't miss this. Then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, everything, and he buys that field. If you understand that, you understand that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is saying, look, if you have to give up everything, if you have to give up your, your friends, your family, your wealth, your safety, your comfort, your very life, and you get Christ, 
Oh, in your joy, if you saw what this really means, you would do that. So we're life lovers. The question is for us, what's in our blanks? What's in your blank? What keeps you up at night? What do you dream about? What, what, what do you uh, kind of plan to make the priority of your life? And, and, and we put different things in these blanks. This week, I, I saw in my own life, I put different things in those blanks. For, for to me is to be highly esteemed, and therefore to die is to be forgotten. But what's in your blank? You, only you can answer that. For to me, to live is status. To die is no status. <laughs> to live is comfort. To die is to be uncomfortable. To live is to travel. To die is to go back to work on Monday morning. To live is what is in your thing. What is to live and what is to die? See, in that blank, the only thing that is gain is Christ. Anything you put in there, even the good things, God, God gives us many good things, and we live in a time and a place where we enjoy many good things. And the Psalms will say, hey, enjoy those things, let them fuel your praise, but those things can't go in the blank because they make crummy gods. And if God was merciful to us, he would strip even those things away from us so that at the end of the day, we could say, all I have is Christ, and Christ is enough. I was thinking about, well, how, what does this look like today? And I've been, I've been tracking with a couple of friends of mine. Here, I'll show you a picture of them. Uh, one guy's named Paul Bradley. The other one is Kevin Johnson. Paul's on the left here. Kevin's on the right. Paul is, uh, works for an organization I used to work for, Cadence International. Uh, and Kevin is a youth pastor in Okinawa, Japan. At Calvary Chapel, he was in the army. When he was in the army, he was stationed in Iraq, and he was a sniper, and he was standing up on a Humvee one day, and uh, he, uh, someone called out his name, and so he bent over to, 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 to answer the guy, and as he bent over where his head was, his shoulder went, and, and a sniper shot and shot through his shoulder. He, I saw him this week. I went through his Facebook pictures. He's, he has pictures of it. It's pretty gruesome. Uh, but nonetheless, he's, he was fine. And then the, the government said, thank you very much for your service. Here's some severance pay and uh, go be a pastor in Okinawa. Paul was a Navy CB. That, that means uh, someone who is in the Navy and, and does a lot of construction work. Paul also works for, uh, has connected, he lives in Thailand, and uh, he connected with a friend named Dave Eubanks, and Dave was crossing the border from, uh, from Thailand into Myanmar and helping out these uh, uh, tribes that were literally under attack from uh, the government military uh, that was totally corrupt, and he started an organization called Free Burma Rangers. What these guys do is they, they go into these villages uh, after they've been attacked and they help these IDPs, what it's called internally, internally dis displaced people. So if you cross, if you're in a conflict zone and you cross a border, you become a refugee. But if you don't cross the border, you're an internally displaced person. And so they give relief and aid and water and they do it all in Jesus' name. 
and they share the gospel, and they, they teach them medical treatment. They teach them how to even set up security so that if, if the, the army tries to come in again, you can do something about that. And so a, a reporter heard about this and, and came and saw their work, and then that reporter went on, and the next assignment was to go to Iraq and, and see the work that's going on there and, and what ISIS is doing there. And this reporter made a connection and called up uh, Dave, the head of the Free Burma Rangers, and said, hey, uh, there's a lot of aid organizations around here, but when the bombs and the bullets start flying, all of them go back, but you guys are the only ones I know that go towards the bombs and the bullets. I I think what you're doing in Myanmar, you could do here in Iraq. And so Dave comes to my friend Paul and says, "Uh, hey, what do you think about this? And and I talked with Paul on Saturday night. He said, well, that's a no-brainer. I going to share the gospel with Muslims in Iraq? Absolutely, let's do it. And I said, uh, Paul, what did your wife think about this? And you, you have three beautiful kids, and what do they think? And he's like, well, they had a piece about it, which is important. And he got Kevin, my friend Kevin, to go. Kevin has seven children and a beautiful wife. And they, uh, they, they, they went there, and Paul's been there now five times for about a month each time. And they, they've got this relationship with an Iraqi general, and he's like, they don't have any medical training. So when a guy gets shot, they don't know what to do. And so they come and they, they train the Iraqis and they help uh, clothe and feed and find shelter for the IDPs. And, and last month, they, they, they processed 18,000 people that had been internally displaced by ISIS. And their relationship is growing. And, and to see some of these videos, this guy, Dave, is always praying, in Jesus' name, help us right here. In Jesus' name, help us right there. He's taking Jesus' name wherever he goes. And the bombs and the bullets are, are flying. And, and they're giving aid. And, and as they grow in their relationship with, um, with the, uh, the, the Iraqis, they've said, hey, we're going to make a surge on Mosul to get ISIS out of Mosul. Will you guys come with us? said, okay, we'll come with you. And, and that's what they've done. They, they've, they've gone into the front lines and, and they've, they're with earshot of the bombs and the bullets. Paul told me one story of uh, this guy who a mortar had hit and blew him like 20 feet in the air and he was delirious. He thought he was going to die. And they rushed to him and, and they, they began to check him out and they're like, there's not a scratch on this guy. <laughs> he hit his head. He's got a concussion, but there's not a scratch on this guy. And so they were uh, trying to get him out of there. And, and Paul says, I prayed for him in Jesus' name four times. And four times I prayed for him and we wrapped his bandage. And then he's like, so I've got a video on my Facebook feed. You can see uh, me with him just right after that moment, and and I'm going to show that to you here real quick. It's just about 20 seconds. So this guy is the guy we treated this morning. He uh, was close to a, he's part of the Hastashabi here, and uh, he was treated for a concussion, and now he's back at the front line. He's a real soldier. He's okay. We're happy. Good, good, very good. (laughs) That's crazy. Paul said that after he hit stop on this video, uh, the guy turns around and comes back to me and says, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. He's like, so you know about Jesus? I said, yeah, I know about Jesus. In fact, I prayed four times as we were uh, helping you, four times in Jesus' name. And the guy says, 
Well, I love Jesus. <laughs> now, I'm not sure about the theology of all that right now, but he's just saying uh, there's, there's just opportunities that you have that, that are given to you when, when you're not controlled by comfort or by fear. And I said, okay, Paul, you, you've lived in Littleton, Colorado, and you worked for the headquarters here. Uh, so I get it. I can apply Philippians 1.21 to you in this situation to, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And, and he said, he said uh, I got a quote from him. He says, it's a tremendous amount of comfort knowing that death is gain. He's like, I can take two to the chest and know that that's all gain for me when I'm on the front lines there. I said, okay, you can get that. And, and a couple things are happening even in this room right now especially probably with the men, like, hey, I, I want to do that. Like, like there, there is, you're created to make your life count, which is crazy because that's the opposite of comfort and safety. And yet, when we go out here and our gospel amnesia will say, comfort and safety, comfort and safety, that's what you want. But, but when we hear this, we're like, yeah, that's what I want. Of course, now, I said, Paul, none of us are going to Iraq tomorrow. And we don't have the military training even if we wanted to. So, so how, does, how does this, I'm kind of walking through the passage with him. I said, Paul, how, how does this uh, apply to the suburban mom? He's like, well, it, it applies. It absolutely applies. I'll quote him. He says, you have to choose not to be led by comfort or by fear. You have to be willing to go into uncomfortable places, even dangerous places. When you do, you find that Christ is there and Christ is at work, and that is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Well, let's continue on and just close up this passage. He, Paul unpacks, how is it that to live is Christ and to die is gain? He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He'll, he'll unpack that later. He says, which, which, yet which shall I choose? It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't really have a choice, but he's like, if I could choose, what would I choose? He says, I am hard-pressed, meaning I'm constrained between the two. My des desire, my desire is to depart, to be loosed from this body and to be with Christ, which for that is far better. Again, in the Greek, that, that, that uh, wouldn't make sense in English. He actually says, uh, to be with Christ, for that is much more better. He, he's like, no, it, it's, not, it's not a little bit better. It's not kind of better. It's not doubly better. It's exponentially better that, that when we die and cross over, if we're in Christ, it is far better. He's like, yeah, that's what I want, absolutely. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's why you exist right now still if you're a follower of Christ, for the progress and joy of other people in the faith. That's your purpose if you're a follower of Christ. If you've been rescued and redeemed, you've brought from, been brought from death to life, if you are a new creation, you exist for the progress and joy of others in the faith. And then when their time is up, it will be gain, which is far better, far better. So 
How do we, how do we deal with this? I, got, I don't know how you process that. It may just mean, hey, comfort and fear are not going to be the, the, the top five of my, my motivating factors. It might be somewhere on the line, but um, it may just mean I'm going to reach out to a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, or uh, I'm going to enter into a, an uncomfortable a relationship, a conversation, uh, because God wants to work his life through me. So I, I've got some questions that each of us should answer, whether you're a student or, or retired or a uh, homeschool mom or uh, a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. I, I think in some way, shape, or form, these can be answered by each of us. The first question is this. How will you make much of Christ through your living? It's one thing to say, yeah, I'll go to Iraq. I'll take, I'll risk it. I'll give my life to Christ. But the fact of the matter is we're all going to walk out of these walls and go to lunch and go to our nice neighborhoods. And yet Christ is still saying, how are you going to make much of me? How are you going to magnify Christ in your living? That's the first question. Second one would be, what uncomfortable, uncomfortable place is God calling you to right now? Maybe share that with someone. Someone in our gospel community this week just said, hey, uh, I felt like God was calling me to do something uncomfortable in work, and, and uh, it just kind of became evident to me that that's where God wants to work through my life. And so uh, we said, hey, we, we'll pray for you. We'll come alongside and pray for you in that. But what, what is it for you? Again, don't let fear and comfort be the driving factors. And the last question I have is, who is God calling you to serve for their progress and joy in Christ. Again, that's probably different for every one of us, so I can't answer that. So what would it look like if we, in our blanks, was Christ and gain? To live as Christ and to die as gain. We lament in the shifting cultural dynamics of of our, our lack of influence as Christians in the, the powers of cultural influence. We're losing that. But, you know, for the first four centuries, we, we didn't have that anyway. We were on the margins of society. And there's one area that every one of us can be great, and that is in serving and loving people. Like, there's not a line for how do I, how do I be great in serving and loving, but Jesus says that's the path to greatness. What if Christians were, were known for that? Well, there was a time when they were. In the first four centuries, as they lived on the margins of societies, as they were persecuted and killed, as they, they would enter into the hardest places where, where plagues would strike the Roman Empire, the Christians would go in and they would take the bodies, the plague-infected bodies, and they would bury them, showing honor to the bodies, and they would serve the widows and the orphans from the plagues. And this just began to be the way God spread the church. Now, let's not over-spiritualize it. Yes, the Holy Spirit spread the church, but he did it through means, and the means were they were great at loving and serving their cities. In the fourth century, one emperor who hated these Christians and wanted to see a revival of paganism wrote a letter to another one of his governors saying, what are we going to do about these Christians? He didn't call them Christians, he called them atheists. Because in Rome, you had thousands of gods, and these Christians rejected all the gods, so they must be atheists. 
And he writes this letter that we have from the 4th century. It's the Roman Emperor Julian. And he says this. Listen to how he describes Christians at that time. And oh, that we could be described like this again by our enemies. He says this. Atheism, i.e. the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. He says this, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He's lamenting. He's like, how are we going to spread paganism again when these Christians are just loving everybody into Christianity? May Redemption Parker be known as those kind of people. That's how we can change this city. That's how we can change this state. And that's how we can change this world. Let me pray for us to that end. God, I, I do pray for your spirit to release us from the shackles of comfort and fear and to walk in boldness, to, to be able to say it and mean it, that to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, show us how to do that this week. And when we have something else in those blanks, Lord, by your spirit, would you lead us to repentance? God, as we walk out of here, help us to not have gospel amnesia, but to walk knowing this is what's true and this is what's right. For your name's sake, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.